time and time again in the Bible, it says God is close to the least of these. We're in a society where success is driven by capitalism, how much money you have. I saw more of a community with the homeless than I did in mainstream society. And I think God is at the margins. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. My name is Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that sponsors this show. And here on The Profile, we like to speak to a different Christian each and every week and find out something about their life, their faith, their ministry, their work. And I'm delighted to say that my guest on the show today is Shamara Fletcher. She is the Principal Officer for Pentecostal, Charismatic and Multicultural Relations at Churches Together in England. And she was also the recipient of the 2020 Exceptional Young Woman Award from the Wise Women Awards and she joins me right now. Shamara, welcome to the show. Hi Sam, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I know you've said before that you've had faith since the womb, which is going (laughs) back some way. Tell me a bit more about uh, your Christian upbringing. Oh yes, I do say that I've had faith from the womb Um, and I say that because my granddad um, was a local pastor in Birmingham my dad then became a local pastor. Um, so yeah, from, from a child, I've been in the church. I was one of those annoying pastor's kids, if you want, um, that was involved in every ministry, from collecting the offering to worship leading um, to ushering and welcoming people um, into the house of God. So yeah, church has been an integral part of my formation. And even just going back to my granddad, who was from the Windrush generation, he came over to the UK um, with other pioneers of his generation, built the church. I used to go around to pubs, collect money, um, to just create community for people and really planted um, a church in the Quinton area in Birmingham. And it's just seen so many leaders um, go on to do national things, international things, but started from a very small beginning. So yeah, I am I am at church from the womb, and that that's why. <laughs> and what are your childhood memories of church? Positive, happy, or were there moments that were more difficult as well? I would say mixed. Being honest with you, so as I said, you know, grew up from church family and was very much in church leadership. So I knew nothing else. You know, it formed me, my worldview, my opinions, and you start questioning. Okay, do I believe this because? I was born into it or do I believe it because it's true and um, when I got to the age of I'm going to say 16 I really came to the realization that God doesn't have grandchildren he has children and you have to have your own personal relationship is this my faith or is it because I've been born into it and I think that's something that Christians ask themselves all the time particularly those who have grown up in church so yeah that's what I would say As you say, it's a pivotal moment for, I think, a a lot of people, those teenage years. And sadly, when we look at the church in the UK, it does seem like an awful lot of teenagers do leave, leave the faith. Mm -hmm. And it's it's wonderful to hear your story. That's that's not your story. It wasn't my story either for what it's worth. But we can both think of a lot of people who did leave around that time. So what was it for you that kept you? And what are the kind of lessons that you think we should learn as the church of how to hold on to our young people? Because a a lot of young people do drift away. A lot of young people do drift away and I think that's because we don't always have honest answers to their questions or sometimes we don't even know. 
and we don't and we're not honest about that uh, as a teenager you're exploring you, you have peer pressure you know I um, built chaplaincy um, in an East London school when I first went to London and the amount of young people that used to come into my office with mental health issues identity crisis and what I used to intentionally do is create spaces for them to be honest a safe space, not condemning them, not not um, coming my Christian rhetoric of you must do this, just listening. And sometimes some of the things I'd hear, I'd be like, oh my goodness, you know, it, it could be scary. But you you love that person anyway, through the good, through the bad, through the shocking, and 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 that's what Christ does with us. You know, there's there is nothing we can't take to Christ. So when young people have things to say to us, we do need to listen. You know, particularly in this day and age, there's been so many social movements. A lot of young people are socially conscious and they want a church that can respond to the needs of our community, society and world. So if the church is insular, I do believe that will detract young people, that they don't want to be in a closed environment that doesn't care about the world. So just having those safe spaces to be yourself, to figure it out, is we're not selling a perfectionism with Christianity. We want authenticity. And like Paul, like Job, like David, we see so many figures in the Bible who told God when things went okay. So yeah, that, that's what I would say. So coming back to your, your story a little bit, tell me more about what took you to, I think it was Chicago, and, and what happened there and how that was... I guess how that formed you and um, what your experiences were like in going to America and then coming back again. Yes, yeah, so I went to America to study. Um, I went to a, a private university there and it was such a formative experience, not only being in a different culture um, and in an educational establishment, but for my faith, as I said before, that's where I realised that God doesn't have grandchildren. I found that um, I still wanted to go to church, even though I had now complete freedom. Nobody knows me, um, which was refreshing. I'll come back to that. Um, I still wanted to go to church. I still wanted to be around other Christians. I still wanted to develop my faith. And I would say, as I look back through my life, that was actually one of the strongest points of my faith because it was mine. There were no expectations. I wasn't known, um, which was refreshing, actually, <laughs> um, to go into a church. Nobody knows your name. Um, you are just a congregant and you can worship. There's no leadership expectations on you. Um, you can just be. But what it did make me realize is just how clicky, um, quote unquote, some of our churches can be. You know, as a new person, not being known, going into a space, welcome is important. You know, how somebody is welcoming to a congregation, how they're seen, how they're known. It wasn't until I was in that position, um, I saw how important it was. So I really do encourage churches, as well as your preaching, your evangelism, your discipleship, please have, um, have an amazing welcome team, a genuine welcome team that, that nourish and welcome people into your space. How was it formative? I grew up. I had to grow up, um, you know, to get back to the UK was a whole Atlantic Ocean away. <laughs> so I had to make a lot of decisions. I had to make decisions about friendships, about money, about what I would study. So it was a very formative um, season in my life. And I would say it changed me. It launched my homeless ministry when I came back to the UK. 
um, because in America, obviously, they don't have a welfare system. So I would see homeless people um, outside JP Morgan, you know, so it's an uber capitalist society um, with, with limbs that were leaking. And I was like, wow, this disparity, this discrepancy between a place that says it's a land of freedom, yet there's so much poverty, homelessness um, outside. <laughs> crazy wealth was just staggering to me and it really it made me angry and it compelled me um, to do the homeless work I did when I came back to the UK. Tell me a little bit more about that. This was in East London, is that right? Well, it actually started in Birmingham and then, right. yes, I, I, I'll tell you the story. So um, when I was 18, um, I was in my local church and our evangelist at the time, he was um, an 80 year old, super stylish, leather wearing um, evangelist. And he came to, to the church and spoke about his prison ministry, his homeless ministry and something compelled me. I said, wow, I need to be a part of that. Um, I love church. I used to sing, I used to do worship, but I was like, church is bigger than these four walls. I, I feel called out there. And on the day that I promised um, to go out with him, I was in a dilemma because I was um, with some friends and we're about to have some fun and go to each other's house. I was like, oh no, but I said, I'm going to go out with Francis Hamilton. Do I cancel or do I go? And making the decision to go changed the whole trajectory of my life. Um, when we went out onto the streets, I saw homeless people showing a hospitality that I didn't even see in mainstream society. They were sharing things, even though they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And it absolutely gripped me. Um, I just felt the presence of God so clearly. And I met um, a man called Ian. Thank you, Ian. If you're listening to this, wherever you are, thank you. You really shaped my life. Um, he really gave us a, a five-point plan <laughs> of how to engage with the homeless. He said, don't assume um, that the homeless aren't already Christian. Um, don't treat the homeless as a human dustbin. Um, so they don't want just food, they want conversation. And make our relationships reciprocal. So I can learn from the homeless community and they can learn from me. Anybody can experience homelessness um, at any point in life. So then I went to Chicago, came back. And when I got back to Birmingham, it was as if homelessness had increased. I don't know if I became more aware of it, so I was seeing it more or if something had gone wrong with the council, if there was a, a lack of funding, I don't know. But I said, we need to do something. So um, I set up a student group. We went out onto the streets of Birmingham every week, giving out food, praying for people, and just listening to what the issues were. Um, and it was very good, but then I started to get frustrated because I said, this is great, we're giving out food, we're listening. But this is just a plaster to a wider systemic route. And I remember saying to my team, do you know what? I want to go to Parliament. I want to go to um, the policymakers because something is not translating on the ground, just flippantly. And then a year later, I was in London as part of the Buxton Leadership Programme, working um, on homelessness, school chaplaincy, and working with a political faith consultancy, where I was able to speak into these issues. Um, we started a group called The Open Table, and it was absolutely transformational because for once we were taking homeless people seriously. I have a house, so my, my intention was to develop homeless people 
to then lead their community. I don't need to speak on behalf of the homeless. We need to empower the homeless to speak for themselves. And that's what we did. Um, we worked with government, local government, national government. Um, we got a bid to create um, shipping containers or modular containers into the housing for the homeless. But the homeless helped to shape that. So yeah, that, that's, that's a short version um, of that story. These days, you can't get a lot for your pound. You could get a pack of balloons. A DIY face mask. Ooh. Or some plasters. Ouch. Or one pound could get you great reporting, brilliant interviews, and loads of Christian news articles, all in Premier Christianity. In print, online, and on the app. For just one pound a month in the Summer Sale Limited offer. Get yours at premierchristianity.com. And how how does your how did your faith how does your faith influence that kind of work? Um, I mean, does it influence your work? Because some people might say, well, you know, there's there's atheists who help the homeless. Um, <laughs> what's so special about your Christian faith when it comes to this work? Or, or is it for you? No, there is there is a connection here. Of it, there is something within my faith that motivates me for this. Yes, um, there is something in my faith that motivates, and you are right. Um, atheists, people of different faiths, help the homeless. So it is a humanitarian charity charitable thing to do. I think what, what I would say is that the homeless community show us a picture of the kingdom of God. Time and time again in the Bible, it says God is close to the least of these. We're in a society where success is driven by capitalism, how much money you have, how much relational connections, how, how good is your job? I saw more of a community with the homeless than I did in mainstream society. And I, and I think it, God is at the margins. You know, we, we see even in the bloodline of Jesus, there's a prostitute, Rahab. Um, there's women, there's those who are in that time marginalized. So I think that the homeless community show us something about the kingdom of God and how we are to relate to each other. If we look at some of the great patriarchs in the Bible, Moses, Abraham, they were homeless. <laughs> there was a time where they were journeying and they had no home and God is with them in the midst of that. So I think there's a message to us that we don't um, go into a paternalistic mode with the homeless or we are giving you a gift. We are helping you. We are the good Christians that help you. Actually, we can learn from your community and we're not romanticizing poverty or saying, you know, poverty is a good thing. No, but I'm saying that I do believe there is something to learn from that community for our faith and it's reciprocal mm. you know when I look at the the homeless man in the cave oftentimes people use that story um to either look at demonology or to look at the fact that you know Rome was the conquering um, power at the time and it was has those political parallels but when I look at that story I say there's a tormented homeless man in a cave that a community has neglected and forgotten about so actually, who has the demon? Is it that man or is it society? Has, has our relational culture left people on the streets? I was reading that, that I think during this time you were invited to, to Parliament to speak about the impact of Brexit on homeless people. Is that right? And, and if so, can you explain a, a bit about what was the impact of Brexit on, on that community that you were working with? 
Yeah, so um, I went to speak about what was happening on the streets and in particular with Brexit, what we saw was a lot of Eastern European um, homeless people as a result and impact of Brexit. A lot of them are facing domestic violence. They might be pregnant. They might have children. So I was just informing them of, you know, when we do create these policies, please do remember um, the, the impact, particularly on our homeless women. So yeah, that, that, that's what I went to speak to them, them about. I also challenged them about our individualistic society, as I was saying before. Um, why do we think it's okay that we have homeless people on the street? Yes, people will say it's personal choice, um, it's money management and all those things, yes, we do need to take into consideration. But I'm talking about our societal attitudes towards the homeless and particularly our women. Um, so yeah, that's what I spoke to him about. It was received um, well, and it was a healthy conversation. Uh, you're, as I mentioned at the beginning, the Principal Officer for Pentecostal, Charismatic and Multicultural Relations at Churches Together in England. Mm. What does it mean to be Pentecostal? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. So from um, a theological point of view, it's talking about a movement um, that was sparked in different parts of the world, principally in um, America, near Azusa Street Revival with William J. Seymour. He was a son of slaves, also happening in, in the UK. Um, so there was a Welsh revival. And it's really a gathering of people that mark the day of Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit um, in their everyday life. And it's a meta, it's a meta movement in the sense that it's not linked or defined to one space or one place or one particular group of people. So for instance, there's Pentecostal and charismatic churches um, within traditional churches. So you have the Pentecostal, you have charismatic, sorry, um, in the Church of England. You might have charismatics in the Baptist church. Um, so it is a meta movement. And that's what I love about movement. It's one of the fastest growing. It's happening in China, in um, Africa, in the Caribbean, um, in Europe. So yeah, it, it's amazing. A lot of their theology would link um, to a liberation theology. Um, so one where Jesus is with the oppressed, liberates those who are on the margins to give them a voice. So um, yeah, that, that's what I would say in short. And, and how important is that identity to you personally? So obviously you're, you're in this in this role um, and we can talk a bit more about church together in a moment, but, but how important is it for you as a Christian to say, I am Pentecostal? Does that is that is that quite a key part of your own identity personally? Um, I would say that my identity has shifted. So um, when I was younger or growing up, being a Pentecostal was my core identity and it still is. But now I would say I'm much more ecumenical. So as I said before, I grew up within the Pentecostal church. Um, and then when I came back from America, was in Birmingham, then came to London, I was actually in a Catholic church and um, within the Church of England I was also part of a monastic community um, which took um, had a rule of life wow. and we worked very well different them. then very different very different but very similar um, which I found mind-blowing mind um, and that's why I would say I'm an ecumenist I, I like the wider kingdom of God I love how churches relate to each other but Pentecostalism yes is a core foundational piece of my spirituality um, in particular you're listening to The Profile. Uh, 
um, and that's why I would say I'm an ecumenist. I, I like the wider kingdom of God. I love how churches relate to each other. But Pentecostalism, yes, is a core foundational piece of my spirituality um, in particular. So, that's so, so where, where have you sort of, I mean, have you landed anywhere in particular? I mean, is there a different language you'd use now to say, to kind of describe what kind of a Christian you are, I suppose. I mean, you say ecumenical, which I, I take to mean you have an appreciation for lots of different church streams and backgrounds. But but for you personally, do you kind of identify in any, any particular camp or category? Oh, this, this is the journey that I'm actually on at the moment. And I speak to a lot of ecumenists who are in this ecumenical space. And, and I ask them the same question, Sam, where do you land? What Where are you? And they're like, we're still figuring it out. I like a bit of this, a bit of that. Um, but I think at the moment, I would say definitely Pentecostal spirituality feeds me, nourishes me. Um, and so does Anglo-Catholic, <laughs> um, higher church spirituality as well. I love the reverence, the communion, um, the priesthood. So I, I would love something a merger, a, a convergence <laughs> um, of, of those two things. And maybe that's part of my vocation. I don't know. Um, that's what I embody at the moment so yeah I'd say Pentecostalism a bit of Church of England and in, within that particularly the Anglo-Catholic tradition. So tell me a bit about how that informs and shapes the role that you have so as I understand it you, you I'm correct if I'm wrong but is there not an extent to which you kind of represent Pentecostal charismatic um, people within churches together yeah um, and so is there a slight tension there? On the one hand, I represent this group of people, this kind of tribe within Christianity, but I'm also kind of very into the Anglo-Catholic Anglo stuff. I mean, on the one hand, I suppose that's very positive in that the whole point of church together is bringing people of different denominations together. But I can imagine that might also present some possible challenges if the person representing Pentecostals is, is seen perhaps as being, oh, you're quite, you're quite broad, Shababa. <laughs> Um, yeah, I can, I can see that perspective, but what I've found is actually it's given me an advantage because it allows me to translate um, into different church cultures um, and to translate Pentecostalism into different church cultures as well. Because um, Churches Together in England is about unity, it's about bringing people together, it wouldn't work if I was tribalistic because it would become a barrier. Um, we would say my way or the highway. Um, if it's not Pentecostalism, we can't talk to you. And, and that's not what we're about. We're about unity. So having, it gives me language to talk into multiple spaces, which you need to do as an ecumenist. You need to have an appreciation um, for other traditions while honoring and loving your own. And, and, and that's what I do. So coming from a Pentecostal background, having a Pentecostal spirituality, being able to be, present and alive in that space as well as being able to talk to the Salvation Army, the Baptist, yeah. the Anglican. That's what an ecumenist does. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. And, and I'd, love, I'd love to dig into that a bit more. So can you maybe just pick on one thing within the kind of Pentecostal background or heritage that you love, that you think mm. others can learn from? And can you pick something from another tradition that's not your own that you've observed that you would love Pentecostals to 
kind of get on board with and learn from as well. Hmm. Okay, so one thing that I love about the Pentecostal, and, and there's different strands of Pentecostalism, I should say. So I'm going to particularly look at the Caribbean Windrush strand of Pentecostalism. I love their tenacity. A lot of them um, were pioneers when they came over from the Caribbean. Um, unfortunately, weren't always welcomed into the mainstream churches at the time. And they built churches from scratch, which we still have today. And I think building in a environment of hardship is a lesson that we can learn even in a post-pandemic environment where churches might be strapped for resources. You know, Pentecost are very creative. They've made a way sometimes when there hasn't been a way. Um, and I think that's something that churches can learn how to be resilient, how to be creative, how to build churches, um, sometimes in a season of, of scarcity, um, of, as well as our worship, um, as well as our community outreach, being able to build um, in a season of scarcity, something I think churches can learn. Um, in terms of your other question, um, I would say the political um, nature of the Church of England and their, they are embedded in society, in the fabrics of our British Constitution Society, um, and they speak into the public space. Pentecostals do that and um, they are doing it much more, but I do think that's something that they could, you know, collaborate and learn with. Um, just like the Anglicans are collaborating and learning from us about church growth. And, um, you know, we are one of the fastest growing movements. So I do think that's a great exchange um, and collaboration. It can be a contentious issue, can't it? Some people have said, you see this, for example, when Justin Welby spoke out about the plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. There were quite a lot of comments at the time of people saying the archbishop should stay out of politics and, and stick to his religious stuff. Um and, uh, you know, I, th I think a lot of Christians responded to that by saying, but actually, well, for one thing, we have an established church, we have bishops in the House of Lords, and there's a recognition that you want people who care about morality to be speaking into politics. Mm. Um, but also Christianity in some way is political, if not party political, it is political at some level. What's, what's your thoughts on that in terms of how far church leaders should go when it comes to political engagement and where that line is? Because I think some Christians are are uncomfortable with going too far into the party politics. Mm. And, and I think you're, you're right to make that distinction between politics and party partisan politics, because, you know, arguably the whole movement of Christianity is political. You know, Jesus is one of the most political figures. He has a state death. You know, he, he's, he, talks, he talks about the morality of the day and the political leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the day. So I don't think we can be in this world and remove ourselves from politics. Maybe not, we don't worship politics, um, but the reality is policy and politics govern and shape our lives and the decisions that we are able to make. You know, the, the text talks about praying for your leaders who, who are in charge because it affects your life. So I don't think we can detach from the political conversation. Um, we should be in the conversation, but what we're saying might be different and should be different. And um, it should be pointed to morality. It should be showing a different way, but not disengaging with the conversation altogether. I think it's also the realization um, that we are speaking from another kingdom. So we don't get our hope from politics. 
like others may do. Um, politics is not our God. But as I said, we do speak into it with a different message, but we can't detach um, from the political arena because as I said, it shapes and governs our lives. Yeah, and I think one example of that in recent years has, has been the Black Lives Matter movement where you've had Christians saying this is, this is not a kind of side political issue. This is an integral key part of what we as Christians believe about, about equality. Mm. Um, when, when at the time of George Floyd's death, we did a magazine cover that said black lives matter to Jesus. Mm. And the, the response from our readers was almost entirely positive. There yeah. were there were some who had various issues with what they saw as, as a, a political organization called Black Lives. But I think most most people understood this was a, a statement that uh, that racism has no place in the church was really what, yes. what the magazine cover was trying to say. But I remember around that time, uh, there were a number of certainly white church leaders making promises or pledges to do things such as look at the makeup of their leadership teams and make sure there's mm -hmm. diversity there. Also, just to listen better and listen more mm -hmm. to black people in their congregation. Number of pledges made. How do you think? How do you think it's gone in the two years since then? Do you, do you have you seen progress, or, or or were promises made and perhaps not so much really followed through and and done in terms of action after that point? Mm. I've seen both. I've seen both. To be honest with you, so I've seen um, church leaders at the highest level making commitments. Um, you know, for instance. The Church of England, they have a racial justice unit and committee led by the amazing Sanjay Pierre. And, you know, they're, they're making um, changes. The Lutheran Council of Great Britain, for instance, they have a steering group where they are listening um, to, their, to their members, to black members, um, looking at their leadership. You know, the Methodist Church, you know, so, so churches are putting steering groups together. But it's just about that accountability um, to keep it going. I do believe that racism should be um, in the same category as safeguarding because it is a form of abuse. So, you know, we do need to have that same level of seriousness. If people are facing abuse and marginalization due to the color of their skin, how is that dealt with that it's not just goodwill? Um, but th there are policies in place so that people are protected. I think one thing that I'm advocating for, particularly from our white church leaders, as you, as you mentioned, is to go from being an ally to being a comrade. Um, you know, an ally will operate with you based on your self-interest. You know, does, does, does this match or suit our vision and agenda in war, right? Whereas a comrade is on the battle with you, it's going hand in hand, you know, it's saying, you know what, we're in this together, we need to fight this together. And I think that's the move that we need to go towards. So not just placing a pledge as an ally, we'll do this because it's, it's the thing to do, but let's walk in this together and tackle this social disease together. Uh, and what's been your own experience, both inside and outside the church, when it when it comes to racism in the UK? Is, this, is racism something you've experienced in in or out of church? And what's what's been your your experience and your your perception of the churches and communities you've been a part of? Hmm. So I guess if within the church, I have been extremely privileged to go to a black majority church. So for me, I have seen black leaders from birth <laughs> on a national, regional, local level, you know, leading organizations internationally. So I have seen black excellence throughout my life. Within my personal life, my mom and my dad have been leaders in the church 
outside of the church, again, on a regional national level. So I do realize that I do come into, I have a particular worldview. I, I don't, um, I haven't seen lack, if you want. Um, I've been grown to be confident. I've been grown that I am more than, um, and that I'm not in a place of being deficient. However, I cannot ignore the systemic, the communal response of people, of, particularly within the black community, of the discrimination that has been done against them. You know, even now, if I go into a room, particularly because of my age, you know, I'm, I was appointed this, into this role at 27, the youngest appointment ever for such a role. So my age being a black woman, sometimes people are like, oh, um, wow. <laughs> and then they hear you speak and then they're like, okay, yeah, because there's, there's something about them. But that's because I've been raised that way. So, um, yeah, I, I've always seen I can do anything in this world. Um, and being a Christian has advanced that. But I'm so mindful that that's not the overall experience of the community. And I'm always advocating that everybody has an equal chance. And beyond equality, equity, you know, is, is about equity as well. So, yeah, that's what I would say. It, it does what you just said about walking into a room. It does remind me of that of that scripture. You'll, you'll, you'll know the reference better than me. But I think it was Paul writing to Timothy who says, do not let anyone look down on you because you were young. And I suppose in our in our age, we could easily add to that. Hey, do not let anyone look down on you because of the color of your skin either. Yeah. Um, and but how sad it is that even in church, we can still do that. We, we make judgments, don't we, based on what people look like, mm. um, which I don't Is it is it just human sin nature? I, I, I don't know. But it is it is sad that we live in that world, that even even within the church, there can be that kind of perception or judgment of someone before they've even opened their mouth. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it is sad. I do think it's part of um, human nature. It's also the legacy of um, colonialism and just how, you know, race has been put in the psyche of people. So even unconsciously, you might be having a thought about something. You have to question yourself, where did that come from? You know, the word talks about casting down every imagination, every thought. So you have to control your mind. You have to control um, when those thoughts coming to your mind about somebody else actually that's not right um, and not just to flow with it but to stop yourself and redress it we're speaking hopefully at the the end or at least the beginning of the end of the covid pandemic i say hopefully um mm -hmm. but certainly at, at the moment of recording society is fairly open people are going to large-scale events again and um you know, there's no longer free testing, for example. So things things have changed uh, quite drastically from from certainly where we were a year or two ago. H how has COVID affected your life, also your work? Um, has it affected churches together? And um, what's your view on how COVID is changing and shaping the church? Because I think everyone has agreed that, that COVID has changed everything um, yes, in, in some ways. But there is a debate, isn't there, still about it? Well, exactly how will the world look after COVID? I mean, especially with something like online church, there were those mm. who said that's it now, the future is entirely online, everyone's going to shift in that direction. And it doesn't quite seem like that's happened. So I'd be interested to know from where you sit, what's your perception on how COVID has changed things for churches across the board? Yes, COVID has changed things for, um, for churches across the board. It's changed the world, you know, it's an epoch, it's, it's a moment in history um, that we will always remember. Two things I'll focus on. You spoke about the online nature of church. I think we're going to move into a very hybrid 
model. So a lot of churches have appointed online pastors. You know, they have an online e-tribe um, where they connect with people all across the world through their online presence. However, human beings still need connection. Um, you know, we're in a, we have a loneliness epidemic potentially as well. People are craving for community and that's what churches provide. Um, I think churches have had to be creative in how they do that. They can't assume that people just come to their their church, you know, what's on offer. And I don't say that from a capitalist point of view, like if you only if you offer me something, then I will come. Um, but just being really intentional about welcome, community, connection groups, um, and as well as having your online offer. Um, in terms of, I think, mental health, a lot of our church leaders were doing funerals, um, were counseling people throughout the pandemic, and many of them are tired. You know, you've had to see your church through, um, your finance and resources have taken a hit, and um, you might have had to let people go. You know, it's, it's been a really stressful time. So I think we'll see the impact of mental health maybe in the next five to 10 years. It probably won't be as imminent as now. So we do have to watch this going forward. Um, I think ecumenism. So for instance, churches together in England, we were holding round tables with church leaders. Church leaders were able to engage with others across the board. How do we share resources? How do we not duplicate? Um, unnecessarily. So we, we've seen a great engagement um, over the pandemic with ecumenism. For me personally, um, I entered the pandemic at 27 and came out at 29. I was like, I've been robbed of two years. <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, my friends and I was just talking about, can you remember the time we were only allowed out for an hour a day or queuing up? And, and those things do have an impact you know we're getting back out and and going out but our lives were ruptured and I think it's something that we will remember for the rest of our lives and I'll finish here family friendships community prioritizing those things you know we, we are human beings not human doings and I think the pandemic showed us we have to prioritize those relationships because when all was said and done that's all that matters that's a wonderful and uh, meaningful and profound place to leave it. Shamama, thank you so much for coming on the show. Shamama Fletcher from Churches Together in England. It's been great to have you on. Thank you. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.